Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers, all for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Rebecca Murphy has been a consultant for over 20 years. She considers herself an interpreter as she has worked in multiple sectors, including government, nonprofit, business, and philanthropy. She is adept at explaining and translating one sector to another. She is a generalist with a broad knowledge base, including workforce development, affordable housing, parks, and placemaking. She has expertise in capacity building, organizational and program development, strategic planning, with a particular expertise in public-private partnerships, community engagement, and strategic collaborations. Hers is a mission-focused practice. She is passionate about mission fidelity and avoiding mission creep. She is an optimistic activist with a passionate live commitment to diversity. Rebecca and my conversation focused on a number of fundamental areas for nonprofit organizations. We dive into what organizations need to think about to be ready to partner and why clarity about your why for partnering is so key how funders play into these dynamics, and why mission creep is so common among organizations and what drives it. We also talk about how organizations can get caught up in the lure of empire building and the impact that has on the organizations in the same ecosystem. Let's listen. Well, welcome, Rebecca. Glad to have you on the Mission Impact podcast. I want to start out by just having you share with listeners kind of what what is your path? How did you get drawn to this work? How did you kind of end up where you are now? Well, Carol, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. How I got drawn to this work is is really very simple. It's something that I always saw myself doing. From my early 20s, I think, I always saw myself as having some kind of business that allowed me to help groups and organizations whose missions I believed in do the work they did better, do the work they did differently, and kind of get achieve, I guess, achieve the objectives that they were setting out to. Coming to this a little bit later than you, I'm impressed that you had that vision for yourself so early on. Kind of what what was the background to that? Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think the first is I have always been somebody who appreciates and was engaged in community work and was engaged in community development work. I came at it through a political lens primarily because that's what my parents did. You know, and my mother did community development work. So, and they were both very involved socially and civically. So, there were always groups and organizations in our kitchen, and we were very engaged. And so, I knew a lot about the universe of nonprofits and the universe of mission driven work from a really young age. And you know, both of my parents are entrepreneurs. I never really saw a full-time job for a company as my path. So that's really that's really how I came at it. And I also, I guess I feel like I was a little bit ahead of my time. I really wanted to be able to work from home so that I could raise my kids. Even when I was young, I knew that was what I wanted. 
Yeah, that's awesome. I just the image of kind of growing up around that my background, my dad worked for the government for the Foreign Service. So he went to work. It was a very, you know, a traditional mm-hmm. job. And it was very mysterious to me as a, as a child. I what I really understood about it was that there was a big desk involved and a big mm-hmm. building and some right. legal pads and government pens. But beyond that, I really didn't understand it. So it's really cool that you kind of were able to absorb that from an early age. Well, one of the things that you focus on is part partnerships, including public-private partnerships. And I certainly believe that partnerships are so key to many nonprofits and how they do their work. And probably, at least my belief is that more should consider them with with so many uh, small organizations all going Mm -hmm. at the same issue. And, you know, partnerships, whether it's with other nonprofit organizations or across sectors as, as you've done. So what would you say are the key things that nonprofits really need to think about when they're getting started with partnerships? I think that the most important thing that a nonprofit needs to do when they're thinking about a partnership is what is their why? Why are you engaging in a partnership? And second to that, but equally as important, what do you bring to the partnership? It can't be about only what it is that you think you'll get out of it. It has to be about what you bring to that. What are your assets? What are your strengths? Because I think partnering from a place where you don't know that is a recipe for disaster. Can you give some disaster stories of when Uh, when that's not gone well? Yeah, I I have had a couple of clients who thought that partnering was a good idea because it was going to get them out of a bad situation. I think that's so common. I think, you know, um, you know, too often organizations are are scrambling when when they're mm-hmm. really struggling and then they think, "Oh, well, we'll partner or we'll merge." And it seems like that's rarely a good time to try to step into those kinds of relationships. It's a terrible time. Partnering from weakness or desperation is a terrible time because you don't have clarity. And when you partner with an organization, you have to have clarity. You have to have clarity of mission. You have to have clarity of your goals. And you have to have clarity about the risk. I think that's the other thing a lot of nonprofits don't think about is what what could go bad. They think about, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be, you know, it'll, it'll help us build our capacity. It'll help us raise money. It'll help us whatever it is that they think it's going to do. But they don't ever think about what's going to happen if it goes sideways. And, and whether, and there are different types of going sideways. There's recoverable going sideways. And then there's sort of the epic, this is, we can't come back from this sideways. And I think that that's an equally important thing to be thinking about when you are thinking about a partnership is what are we going to do if it goes south? How do we extricate ourselves? How do we, and what are we going to do? So I, I usually like to, to focus on the uh, more of a strengths-based approach and, and kind of when things go well. Describe a partnership that, that you've seen where, you know, they really did um, things right. They did the due diligence and it really benefited both organizations in a way that you, you were um, even surprised by maybe. Okay. The story I can tell, the stories I can tell best really relate to collaborations, which are, I think, partnerships with more than two players. and. I think that they've worked, the ones that I have seen or been a part of that have worked really well were those where there was a common goal, whether it was a common problem that needed solving or a common issue that needed to be addressed. And everybody who was there 
brought different strengths to the table. They were partnering not from weakness, but in a manner that compensated for each other's sort of skill gaps. Because I don't think that anybody in that particular, in this particular scenario was weak. I think they just had different skill gaps. And I think that's almost the best way to think about a partner. Is this partner somebody who's going to fill my skills gaps? And can I do the same for them? Yeah, so what are those complementary um, pieces where you, you know, you don't all have to bring the same strengths uh, right. to the table? I mean, it could be something from something as simple as here's a, these people understand organizational development. I don't understand organizational development, but I want some, I want to work with somebody who does. Um, two organizations that are focusing on an issue that's the, the same issue. One organization has real strength in advocacy and organizing. One organization has real strength in writing and policy work. You know, those, those are two skills that those are two sort of sets of skills that it's rare to find in one organization. Some organizations are good at service providing and other organizations are better at management. I think that a lot of times organizations can partner to build capacity or to test something. You can market test through a, through a partnership. Here is, you know, particularly, I found this true, particularly in the community development space. There are lots of nonprofits that want to get into community development, whether that is they want to build themselves a facility, they want to, um, whether they're in the housing business, there could be a church or some other big nonprofit that doesn't provide a service that they want to provide in the community development realm. Partnering with somebody who has that skill is can be very successful because for everybody, I think because the organization that needs the partner that wants to develop the housing or the community center or whatever, they have clarity of mission. They have built-in constituency. They can fill the rooms. They can you know, run the programs. And they partner with somebody who understands how to actually get a building built or how to get houses built or you know, how do you raise money for that? How do you think about that? How do you budget? How do you plan? And so those kinds of things, that, those are very successful partnerships generally in the, I think partnerships in community development work, I think partnerships where it's potential, where there's potential for, to reach economies of scale, for example, you know, especially this gets really to what you talked about from the very beginning. There's lots of, if there's a space where there are lots of actors in Baltimore, this was true in the out of school time space. There was a period in, I think, the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, where everybody, it seemed, was in the out-of-school time, after-school program business. And some people were operating out of their homes. They had, or they were operating out of a church basement. Some people had more robust programs, or they had bigger space, or they had outdoor space. But the marketplace was so crowded that... And the small guys were really at, in danger of or risk of not being able to continue to survive, not because they weren't doing really good work, but because they didn't have the capacity or the need for a nonprofit organization, but they didn't know about fiscal sponsorship. They didn't have, they didn't have all the sort of back office stuff 
but they were providing an extraordinarily high quality service. So I facilitated a collaboration amongst, I think there were six small providers in a neighborhood in Baltimore City that all had different types of service. There was an arts group. There was a tutoring group. There was a sports group. I think there might have been two of each one. And I said to them, okay, you don't all need a lawyer. You don't all need an accountant. You don't all need, you know, but you've got to have a structure. So basically, they set, they pulled together a collaboration and then they identified a single fiscal sponsor and somebody who was able to manage all the admin for all six of them. They were able to, in the course of a year, each of them raise enough money to operate both independently, but also to, for the first time, do collaborative programming. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems to me that it's too easy for many organizations to really get caught up in their own work and and not really take the time to think about who else might be in their ecosystem. And as you're saying, even in their neighborhood, their community Mm -hmm. of who might they be working with for greater impact and that back office stuff. I mean, with, you know, what it's, I'm not sure what the statistic is and I should probably look it up, but it's like 70 to 80% of nonprofits with less than $750,000 budgets. If every single one of them is replicating that back office, it's a huge amount of resources that are It could be put to program if they were to partner up with some other organizations and share, share those, share those resources. And, you know, we're recording this in the midst of the quarantining for the uh, coronavirus. So I'm guessing that, that this is going to have some impacts on people where they, where they start looking at those things and start doing what uh, solo entrepreneurs have been doing for years of, you know, um, hiring virtual assistants and virtual back office, virtual um, accounting, all of those things. So, yeah, and and interestingly, uh, I think, you know, there's a difference between a partnership, just a one-to-one, and then that that multi-party partnership, and then even mm-hmm. to the next level and I, of, of bigger collaborations where you had talked about how that why and why you're getting together um, is so important. And and I've seen in, in larger collaborations where, it may seem obvious why everyone's together, um, and yet without right. having a, a deliberate conversation about how are we defining what our goal mm-hmm. is really specifically, um, exactly. everyone can have their own definition of what that goal is. I think that's right. And I think, too, that you can end up in the space of too many cooks in the kitchen, not enough sous chefs, whatever the metaphor is. It's really about leadership, and about who's going to be in charge, for lack of a better term. It's like if you had a room full of first children. Do you know what I mean? Nobody. <laughs> no. I, I, I'm a middle child, so I don't no, want to be don't. in that room. <laughs> no, you don't. I'm a first child. Trust me, you do not want to be in that room. But I think it's the same. I think it's that phenomenon. You know, it's everybody thinks that they are in charge. And I think the, and so understanding and really articulating who's not only who's going to do what, but who's accountable for what, who's responsible for what, because those are the tough conversations that you need to have. And that's the stuff that if you don't do it, can really kill you, not just the partnership, but it has implications for your individual organizations. If nobody talks about 
Who's going to sign on the dotted line? Who's going to be the fiduciary? Who's going to take, whose insurance are you going to carry? Do you need to get insurance as a group? All of those things are hugely important. When you're engaged in a partnership around an issue, it's easier to put those things aside. Or if you are engaged in a partnership that is time limited around a legislative issue or a crisis or a, you know, some kind of one-off fit challenge, it's very easy to let that stuff go. And then when you finish and you got to clean it all up and you have a big old stew of stuff you can't figure out, it's a giant problem. And I think the other thing about that and about partnerships in general is you're talking about relationships. You're talking about people that presumably you like and respect and trust. And if you don't, you're not doing enough. You're doing a disservice to the relationships if you don't take the time to think about that stuff and really figure it out. And I mean, in some instances, you know, you can't have that assumption that everyone likes and respects each other and, um, uh, you know, it may be that a, a funder is saying, all of you guys are in this space and I want you all to work together. Um, mm-hmm. what, when, when you've seen those kinds of situations, there's a, there's a you know, there's a the whole bunch marriage. of steps. The arranged marriage, right. Arranged marriage, yes. Where you have to start building that trust and just, you know, you probably have to step way back before you can get to action to just mm-hmm. like, why are we all here? What do we think we can get out of this? How are we going to work together? And you may be competitors. I mean, that's the other thing. I had a client last year who had been repeatedly asked by a fund, by a prospective funder to partner with what they viewed as a complementary organization. My client saw those, saw that group as having a very different strategy, a very different objective, and they were competitors. So they did not want to partner with that group. The mistake they made, however, was not explaining that to the funder. They didn't explain to the funder that while they respected the work that group did, their mission, and they had a very similar, I guess, 20,000-foot mission, how they got there, in my client's view, was incompatible. Their strategies were incompatible. And I think, and as a result, they that really affected their relationship with the funder because they didn't communicate. You know, if they had, and then when we finally were able to kind of get that relationship back on track, the funder was very, well, you should have just said something. I don't know. You know, I was looking at it from a very narrow perspective. You're doing this, they're doing this. You should all do it together. If you had said to me, "Eh," or we can only partner in this one little area rather than just not doing it. Yeah, and that's a really good point about the, you know, kind of the 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 twenty thousand foot mission versus mm-hmm. your essentially, you know, the the theory of change or um, you know, how are you seeing um what you the the steps that you take, the strategies you take Precisely. and how that's getting you to an end goal. And um you, you you say that you're really passionate about mission fidelity and avoiding mission creep. And I think, you know, this is just a huge challenge in the nonprofit sector for lots and lots of reasons. What what do you what do you see that really drives mission creep um, in your experience? Economics. So say more about that. The 
the number one thing in my experience that causes mission creep is fundraising success. I think very often organizations use the availability of funds as a, you know, oh, we'll try this. You know what I mean? It's not very well thought through. If you have, and I think it's, it's less about, I mean, be more specific. It's less about economics broadly than it is about covering your operating expense, which I think is one of the single biggest challenges and one of the things that I think that the philanthropic community should be doing more of is covering the appropriate percentage, you know, covering operating expenses at the appropriate level. Because what often, ha- what I have seen happen is organization A, they're a STEM organization. They provide STEM services. You know, they teach kids STEM in the after school space. They raise X number of, they have a $50,000 budget or $100,000 budget, of which $20,000 is general operating or 30,000 is general operating. They are applying for program grants. There is not an organization, at this point, there was not an organization that I had seen. And I worked for a philanthropy and our general operating number, I think was 11%. And we were very high at the time. General operating isn't sexy. It's not new. It's not the bright, shiny thing. So it can be very hard to raise money for. So this particular organization saw a grant opportunity to provide counseling, like to provide family counseling or something, something that was utterly unrelated to, but could have been tangentially, you know, their way in was we will counsel the families of the kids we serve. So they, because they were like, we need the money. So they went after that. It was a disaster because it was so far outside of their mission. Well, probably in their core competence. And their core competence, exactly. But I think often, and that might not, that's a very extreme example. Often it's, we'll do the same thing in a different issue. We'll do the same thing in a slightly different program area. But the result is the same. And you see it a lot in medium, or I see it a lot in medium-sized nonprofits or nonprofits that want to go from small to medium size. If there is a trend in philanthropy, if there's a if the new bright shiny thing is what funders are funding, then the temptation is very great to try the new bright shiny thing as a means to keep your doors open. You know, rather than doing what you do really really well, and working harder to find the funders that support that. But that's a hard thing too. You know, I think that avoiding mission creep is a function of capacity. If yeah, I've seen, um, and I am not a fundraising consultant, so this is just mm-hmm. from observations. But um, yeah, I, I, especially with newer organizations, you're talking about that moving from small to, to medium size. Um, you know, maybe there's a, a, maybe a lack of understanding of what really the impact that grants can have on an organization Mm -hmm. from the board's perspective. It just seems like, oh, wow, it's free money. We're going to, I mean, it's not free money because you got to do work for it, but, but the sense of never thinking about what that grant might actually cost the organization. Exactly. Is, is the piece that people miss. 
I think that's right. And I think there's a lot of well-intentioned grant making that isn't necessarily well thought through. And I also think that there's a temptation. I think that works the other. I think that the, the sort of counter to that in a mission creep space is empire building. Do you know what I mean? There's, there are say, say a little often, bit more about that. There are often in any given city, three or four big dogs that started out doing whatever they did, but that because their organization is really good at whatever it is that they started out doing, they're the ones that get offered the new bright, shiny thing. And because they have the capacity to do it, even if it's not hurry up and figure out how to do it, right. They have the capacity to hurry up and figure out how to do it. And somebody asked them to do it. Somebody with money said, why don't you try this? I mean, there's an organization in Baltimore that is the, they do great work, but they are the object lesson for empire building. They did one thing exceptionally well because they did that one thing exceptionally well and the ed was out and about a lot people knew him he's a smart guy you know he was easy to like the program was a very feel-goody program he said okay huh somebody's gonna and somebody asked him to go into the like housing renovation business or some absurd ancillary thing and because somebody asked him to do it, he did exactly what you said. He hurried up and figured out, because he had the bandwidth within his staff and he had the resources to train, he figured out how to do that. Or so, hire some experts in it to exactly, help them do it. Exactly, exactly. So even though he went and did it and did, it a, did a serviceable job at it, he put out of business the two organizations, you know, across town that were doing that work successfully, but that were really, really tiny. So nobody knew they were there. So it's kind of the unintended consequences of that. The unintended consequences of not really understanding capacity building and choosing expansion for the known over training somebody who is smaller and maybe less well-known. So this organization, just to wrap it up in a bow, ended up being the go-to organization, they ended up with fiscal sponsorships and blah, blah, blah in 15 different issue areas. And they had a very high opinion of themselves. When it came, and they had one of those heavy-duty blockbuster boards with all the bold faces and everybody, either they were the group. And it got to a point where the people who ran it took themselves way too seriously. (laughs) And... You know, it's flattering to be asked to do all those things. It is. And if you're able to figure out how to do them even marginally well, you also have the ability to cover your own failures. You can paper over the fact that you're not as good at it as you were at your core service, but you're passively good at it and people love you. So they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But I was putting together a program. I was working inside. I was working inside government, and I was putting together a program. And we needed I was needed a big application, and we were looking for nonprofits to work with who would be the lead for this particular grant. These guys were not the right ones, but they were badgering. They really thought they were. And they couldn't figure out why they hadn't been asked to dance. And we went with somebody else because it was an opportunity to elevate that group. They were 
you know, very, very good and ready to do the next thing. And it was really interesting having to explain to this very successful organization that they were not the ones. But I think that, and I think that happens too. I think that happens fairly regularly. I think in every single city, there are three or four big dogs, then there's two or three medium dogs, and then there's 35 small dogs who can't get out of the dog run because they can't raise any money. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. I want to share an exciting new opportunity with you today. Since everyone has shifted into remote work, lots of people are having to lead meetings online. You may have been comfortable with leading the meeting when everyone was gathered around a table together, but how can you help groups work effectively together online? I can help you as I've been creating online learning experiences since the early 2000s. If you'd like to build your confidence leading meetings online, join me for a four-week group coaching program where you will learn the essentials of effective online or virtual facilitation. My next cohort is starting September 22nd, and registration is open now. Just go to gracesocialsector.com forward slash effective dash online dash facilitation. Thank you. We're back on Mission Impact. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit and play a game. Okay. Uh, so I have, uh, being a facilitator of many, many meetings and designing lots of s- retreats and planning sessions, etc. I have many boxes of icebreakers because other people are better at thinking up fun questions than I am. So I'm just going to use theirs. So I totally think you should have a facilitator toolkit, by the way. Well, one of these days I will, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So the question is, if you could live in a sitcom, which one would it be and why? Oh my, huh. Is this a, if my life were a sitcom or can I pick a sitcom? Am I picking a sitcom to inhabit? You're, you're living in it. You're, you're being dropped in. You are now a character okay. in this sitcom. Okay. All right. Off the top of my head, answer is friends, because it's impossible to believe that they could all be in New York and not have a black friend. Well, there you go. They needed to, that, that just was, I never understood that. Well, you know, it's funny. When I pulled this this um, card out of the box this morning, uh, I actually thought of friends also, but then yeah. started thinking, you know, um, well, let's see, I'd be the nerdy friend that, uh, you know, certainly wouldn't be hanging out with those folks if I were, you know, in college or whatever. I'd be the, bl- I'd be the black snarky friend. That's but, all. I, but, I get that that's my thing. All right. Excellent. And uh, mostly because I was uh, I was a single mom in my 20s. And so I did not get to have that time of like hanging out with your friends and that being your family. So I would I would I would uh, take a vacation there with those folks as well. So um, so what are you excited about? What's coming up for you that's uh, emerging in terms of your practice and the work you're doing? I am, I'm really excited about partnerships and collaborations right now. And I was excited about it before all of this craziness, but I am weirdly more excited about it now because I think that what is happening in our country and in our world is both exposing some real fissures that need to be fundamentally addressed. But secondarily, I think, you know, every, I forget, every crisis is an opportunity, right? And 
I think we, I think that the nonprofit sector has a real opportunity to examine their work, to come up with, to be very creative in terms of service providing, because we are in a, in a period where lots of people need lots of things. And I think that both big and small established and less established organizations of different competencies have real opportunities to come together and increase capacity and develop broader programming and change and think about the ways in which they serve their constituents. And that's a very, and I think that there is a lot of opportunity for people like me who understand and can help you figure that out, you know, and that, so that, but the other way I'm thinking about it is, you know, one of the things I always, one of the ways I describe myself in my practice is that I'm an interpreter, you know, because I have experience not just across sectors, but across subject matters, you know, so what that has given me is a, is a certain agility and nimbleness to be able to explain and interpret and facilitate collaborations because I understand how each sector works with the other from a, from the, from their particular vantage point. So I always joke that I can, tr- I translate, I can speak philanthropy to government. I can speak nonprofit to philanthropy. I can speak, you know, I can be in all of those spaces and create meaningful collaborations. And I think that that's a very, I think that's going to be a very useful skill going forward. Yeah, I think, you know, people are having to, you know, there, there are some who had jumped on the bandwagon in terms of, you know, working um, from a distance. And obviously not everything can be done from a distance, but a lot of places are having to rethink how they do their work. Mm-hmm. And and maybe suddenly, you know, things that people kind of doubted. I know in the work that my daughter does, they do virtual advising of college students for financial aid. And suddenly virtual advising is the one thing that they can do right now. Right. Uh, right. Where the face-to-face is no, no longer possible. So, yeah. So you talked about things emerging for you. So how can people get in touch with you? People can get in touch with me via my website, which is www rcmstrategicconsulting, no caps, no spaces.com. I can be reached via email at rcmstrategicconsulting at gmail.com. I have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. My Twitter account is rcmstratconsult. All right. Well, get in touch with Rebecca there. And thank you so much for coming on. This was a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much for having me, Carol. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. Please take a minute to rate and review Mission Impact on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the podcast and we really appreciate it.